Welcome to AntimatterPod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week we're discussing the final three episodes of Star Trek Strange New World Season 1, The Elysian Kingdom, All Those Who Wander, and Equality of Mercy. That was certainly a season of television, Annika. And whole episodes. <laughs> there were plots and scripts and all the things you meant to have. Definitely a season of television. Uh, was it any good? So, against my better judgment, but mm-hmm. in service to the podcast. You're a good person. I watched <laughs> these three episodes again just now. All in a row. Three hours. Thank you for your service. And I learned some stuff. So I noticed things watching them together that I didn't notice watching them apart. So it was worth it. Yes. It was good. But I have to say that by the time I got to the third episode, the season finale at Quality of Mercy, my notes turned into everything is just caps lock and a bunch of (laughs) exclamation points they show the previously on for that episode and it's all of this una saying maybe you don't have to kill yourself to save people or ruin your life by becoming disabled that's the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a person and in that moment i started writing my angry notes and it was (laughs) all the way back to i hate disco season two because of those stupid Klingons and their stupid time crystal that they created this whole mess. Right, it's definitely the Klingons' fault. I will say I have certainly been disappointed in season one of Strange New Worlds. I have rewatched nothing and I couldn't pay attention to certain episodes because they were silly and not emotionally engaging for me. And I just want to say from the beginning that I understand that my opinions are subjective and they are not fact. So if I say something is objectively bad, I mean that, but I also understand people are going to think differently. And that is, in fact, objectively good. I just think they're wrong. Anyway, my brother messaged me last weekend to say he's finished Strange New Worlds and he thinks it might be Star Trek for Republicans. And then he followed up a couple of minutes later and said, no, I think that's too harsh. I think it's Star Trek for people who were liberals 30 years ago. That's such a good description. But I wouldn't even say 30 years ago. Because when did the West Wing end? It's Star Trek for those people. Oh my goodness. And I loved the West Wing when it happened. And I wrote fic for the West Wing. And it is one of those things which has aged so badly that when I see references to it now, I cringe. I'm not dinging the West Wing from 12 years ago. I don't know when the West Wing ended. Or the people who loved it then, or the people who love it still. I'm dinging the idea of those liberals who Mm. are like, we're going to get along with all the good Republicans. Yeah, I remember when Strange New Worlds was announced and you and I were unenthusiastic and we were concerned that it would be the Pike, Spock and Una show and that if there was a diverse supporting cast, they would primarily serve the white main characters. And in fact, it turns out to be the Pike and Spock show. Not even Spock, okay? I know that the entire point of the last episode is that Spock is the most important person in the universe. 
However, I honestly don't think that, like, Spock got a lot to do, but he did not have an arc. He had, like, mm. parts, little bursts of maybe I will have some characterization, but then they remembered that they couldn't do that because it happens later. That's kind of part of the problem that they spend so much time on <laughs> Spock, but Spock's story is told. It's like doing a Spider-Man origin again. And it's not clever the way, like, Into the Spider-Verse tells the Spider-Man origin story, like, five times in one right. And it's great. And this is, we are going to make Spock a focal point for this story, and then we're not going to do anything with it because we can't. They tell you a lot about him, but they don't really tell you anything we didn't already know. Save the relationship with T'Pring, which is great, I love it, but it's also increasingly difficult to reconcile with canon. Canon being TOS. I guess I'm implying that I don't think Strange New Worlds is canon. I'm certainly not going to know. go that far. Of course far. it is. No, it's canon. It's real Star Trek. I just don't like most of its choices. I just think it's entirely, yeah, it's not the Pike and Spock and Una show. And I don't think it's even the Pike and Spock show. I think it is literally the Pike show. He's the only one who learns something. But the problem is that what he learns is horrible. I have had this problem since Lift Us Up Where Suffering Cannot Reach, but I really hate Captain Pike. Right, and we're supposed to love him, but okay, we haven't even talked about the other two episodes that are better, <laughs> in my opinion. Obviously, everything that I say on the podcast is in my opinion. Please take that as you will. I am not saying that you shouldn't like Pike or you shouldn't like quality of mercy or you shouldn't like strange new worlds i'm just saying i have a lot of problems i do find it fascinating that the fandom and not just the straight cis white men of fandom have embraced strange new worlds so unquestioningly i think a few episodes ago i compared it to season three of voyager where it's competent but not groundbreaking and then by the end of this season, I think it's more like season one of The Next Generation, where there's some interesting ideas, but so much of it is just going around seeing people who need help, and all they offer is a lecture on how they need to be more like the Federation, and then they wouldn't need help, and not doing anything else. And obviously TNG radically improved, but the thing is, no one is out there arguing that TNG season one is a great piece of television. Yes, so TNG radically improved and you feel like we shouldn't go back to that? Shouldn't we have mm. moved forward? I'm not saying that every new Trek shouldn't be given the training wheels for the beginning and we shouldn't expect brilliance mm. right off the bat. This was a functional first season. The thing is, though, is there any other franchise, is there any other series where we give them a season or two seasons to stuff around and be second rate? Stranger Things was great out the bat. The Umbrella Academy was great from the first episode. There's so much more television now that it has to really grab you. It either has to be great or have that sort of niche that finds an audience of very mm. passionate people who mm. can keep it going. One or the other. And I think that with strange new worlds and with star trek in general they are banking on the fact that audience already exists the niche track yes audience 
And so they're coasting <laughs> on the idea that, that they're okay. Yeah. And plenty of people love this. Whatever. A lot of my friends became casual Trekkies with season one of Discovery because they felt welcomed by the show. It was telling a story which introduced them to the audience and made them feel like they had a place here. And then Picard and Now Strange New Worlds have made them feel unwelcome. And on the one hand, you have Prodigy, which is also steeped in nostalgia, but has a proactive anti-gatekeeping concept and style. Mm -hmm. And... A, it's animated and it's a kid's show and no one's watching it, but right. it's also not getting a fraction of the attention that Strange New Worlds and Picard get. I just feel like by aiming exclusively for the nostalgia crew, they're not giving themselves and Star Trek the opportunity to grow. And right. I need more than nostalgia. I'm sorry. I love the idea of seeing familiar people and places, but... The thing about The Next Generation is that it was earned. They went so many years before they even mentioned the name of a character from TOS. Dr. McCoy was in the first episode of TOS. It's but, true. But I mean, uh, of TNG. <laughs> but it wasn't important. He was deliberately was, not named, too. And that was the only vestige of the original series for seasons to come. Roddenberry okay, didn't I'm even sorry, want to I don't want to will actually you. Please. <laughs> But they definitely mentioned Kirk's Enterprise in the second episode, The Naked oh. Now. Okay, yes. I yes, understand yes. wanting to black that out. No, I have been well actually, and I deserve it. Is what I'm saying. I think that TNG did start mm. out with we're going to be really, really based on TOS, mm. mainly because Gene Roddenberry was still alive and so had a like, huge hand in it, but was influential. It had, it was, this was a legacy piece. Yes. And I think that when they actually let go of that is when they got good. Absolutely. So, therefore, that's why Strange New Worlds should have already learned this lesson and not be so heaped in it. We, I like, okay, so I have this little list. I, ha I made a little list of people who are served by these 10 episodes, which is only Pike. <laughs> Then there's people who appear to be served by these 10 episodes, but I'm not sure they are. And that's Spock and Uhura. Uhura actually fares better than Spock because we learned a lot more about Uhura than we ever knew before. And she right. does definitely have an arc. Uhura has a journey and is a very important character, but only sometimes. <laughs> she disappears. Every time she's not important, she's not even there. And also, it's a little bit weird that she levels up into the communications officer we already knew she was. It's just strange. It's anticlimactic because we yeah. already knew that. And now we also know that she's never going to be anything else. No, no. If Ahura's arc this season is about making her the character she has been for 50 odd years, that's disappointing. And then, so then we have people who get something to do at least once mm. and twice. And that's Una, yes. Benga, La'an, Hammer, and Chapel. They yes. all got something to do. Hammer's was mostly about Uhura, mm -hmm. although also Mabenga, anyway. And Chapel's was entirely about Spock, but at least they got things to do. They did, and Chapel is such a vivid presence throughout the series that it was really shocking when I looked back and went, oh, 
all of her stories revolve around Spock, just like the original series. <laughs> and then we have someone who is allegedly a main cast character that I still could not tell you anything about other than I don't like her. And that's Ortegas. And what I wrote in, in the notes was people who are allegedly regulars, but got as much as or actually less than the Kirk brothers. Yeah, look, Ortegas got a second dimension in the flash forward of the finale and it turns out she's an asshole. And in some ways it's Detmer all over again in that we have this wildly popular character who actually does nothing. But with Detmer... I guess they fly good. They fly good. And with Detma, she has this emotional breakdown in season three of Discovery, and she's an asshole, basically. But we had known her long enough to understand that even if we had not seen it on screen, there was probably more happening for her than just being a jerk. Whereas Ortegas, I think she might be a full-time jerk. So here is something that I learned by watching these three episodes in a row. Oh, in the Elysian Kingdom, which I had written off as none of those people are even those people. So yeah, who cares? Yeah. That episode doesn't matter, except in that episode, Pike and Benga are both saying, hey, let's try t- diplomacy mm. instead of fighting and, and battle. And Ortegas is from the get-go. I want to go get these people. I want to take my sword and attack them and Mm. win. You have a giant weapon of mass destruction. Let's use it now. That is her entire character in the fake place as well as in the fake future. So Ortegas has no personality whatsoever in the reality. And then in fake land, she's the worst. I see how that trait ties in with her behavior in fake balance of terror in that there she is also like okay let's go to war then and that's a really unpleasant trait but the thing is we're just a couple of years out from the federation's war with the klingons there is a story there about her experiences in that war and how they have changed her and that wasn't the enterprise not in that war no but she wasn't Wasn't on the enterprise She was only assigned to the Enterprise in the first episode of this season. She's new to the ship. How is that possible? Because she's the one who introduces Uhura to how things happen. Oh, you're right. Now I'm confused, and I certainly don't want to go back and rewatch <laughs> the first episode. But I am going to assume that at some point she was separate from the Enterprise and had some sort of terrible wartime experience that has left her deeply traumatised, and it would be interesting to actually explore that instead of just having her be there quipping and making weirdly sexual remarks on the bridge and calling for fighting McFights. I think it's cool that fandom has latched on to a one-dimensional female character of colour instead of a one-dimensional white guy, but I don't see the appeal and maybe it's because I know Melissa Navia was rude to you at the premiere, but I don't like her. Yeah. She hasn't done anything to win me over. Yeah. On screen or off screen. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning. Yes. With the Elysian Kingdom, or a dying black girl's fan fiction takes over (laughs) the Enterprise with the help of a space cloud. So I went into this, I saw the preview pictures and I was like, oh no, because I hate the holodeck romps. I hate costumes and silly fake medieval fantasy stuff in Star Trek. I don't like any of that. But then I saw it was a Mabenga episode. 
and we had just been complaining about the lack of Mabenga episodes. So I was like, I am going to find it within myself to enjoy this. And I did. It was a great episode for Mabenga and a great episode for Hema and Rakia and everyone else was having a lot of fun. My question is, it's a great episode for Hammer. Why is Hammer so prominent in this episode when he's going to die in the next one? I am also furious about that. I'm furious about Hammer's death in general, because this was also where he became a more three-dimensional character to me, in that he's not just a blind, grumpy guy who loves fixing things. He's also a massive goofball who really gets into his LARPing. And I love that. I want to see more of that. It was so fun to see first he's angry that the world doesn't make sense and this <laughs> nebula is trying to pull his brain out through his nose and then he really gets into this wizard role and it was just so fun and delightful to watch and this relationship that we saw between Hema and Mabenga where they were colleagues who got on well but they weren't really friends and certainly Hema didn't know anything about Mabenga's life and then by mm -hmm. the end of the episode, they're good friends. It's Wait. great. Yeah. So it's sad to me that we get all of that and then immediately lose it. And the thing is, that episode proves that Manga is so lonely. Yes. His only maybe friend is Una. <laughs> she knows his name. So that's good. They use first names. She knows his secrets. They're kind of adorable. I totally ship it. He also knows her secrets. Yes. So I really love their relationship, but instead of seeing their relationship at all, we get this arc of Mbenga and Hammer that he immediately loses. Yes. So he almost had a second friend, but he doesn't. And no. also he lost his daughter. Yeah. Mbenga is one of my favorite characters. He may actually be my favorite character. And he is certainly the one that I would most like to spend time with. So it would be nice to spend time with him. And I find the Elysian Kingdom frustrating in a way because it's much too early in the series to have an episode where everyone's playing different roles, but they don't reveal anything about them, about the real characters. We get an actual queer relationship on screen, but it has no bearing whatsoever on the series or the characters themselves. Certainly Una Ortegas is not suddenly a thing. I don't actually think they've ever interacted. So <laughs> Do they even know each other? Well, they both work on the bridge, so they probably know what the other one looks like. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they've been at dinner parties together. Yeah, yeah. So Breakfast, I guess. They're acquaintances, but the relationship... But they're not, they're yeah. They don't have a secret romance that's happening. No, and in that way, it was like, finally, some overt queerness that's not evil. But it immediately became tokenistic in the way that all of this series' queerness is basically... Exactly. The same way it was when they would go to the Mirror Universe in Deep Space Nine and everybody was queer there. Yes. It's the same sort of, maybe somewhere... <laughs> Mm. Queer relationships exist, but not in the actual universe. No we've, no, we've reverted back to that from Discovery, which is and really Picard. Yeah, yeah. Even Picard eventually got to the point where they were allowed to have overt queerness, and I tend to blame this on Akiva Goldsman because he is the consistent factor in all the live-action new treks that I don't 
care for or have problems with. But also, I don't want to let Alex Kurtzman off the hook because he is the guy overseeing all the treks and he keeps allowing this to happen. So the only other thing I want to say about the Elysian Kingdom, because again, I don't think it actually matters, (laughs) is that I do think it was clever the way that they wrapped up this storyline in that they basically caught the ship in a buffer and said, all you can do here in this buffer is play out this story over and over mm. again. Just like And Rikia. so Benga got to live firsthand and realize what he was doing to his child. Mm. And I think that's interesting. And I wish that they had explored that in any way instead of Spock's wig. I completely agree, although Spock was very attractive in this episode. To me, it was very strange that this is how the Rukia story was wrapped up. And it feels like at some point very late in the process, they realized that the actress was going to age too quickly to get away with this for long. And so they were like, oh, Mm -hmm. shit, we just need to throw this out. And... That raises the question, why did they start down this path to begin with? One of the great things about streaming is that you don't have to lock yourself into a storyline early on because you have time to write and rewrite and everything. Eric Kripke had an interview about this just recently. So it just feels like, once again, and this is common to a lot of Paramount Plus properties, they want prestige drama, but they're making it like it's a network procedural. And the other thing that I have to say is that I've seen criticisms of Rakia's fate as ableist, either as a magic cure or an encouraging euthanasia for chronic illnesses, which is something that particularly happens in Canada. It's a particularly Canadian problem and it's Canadian people that I've seen pointing this out. So obviously it's on their mind. I disagree. I can see the magic cure trope, but I also think that we shouldn't conflate a chronic illness, which is something you live with, with a terminal illness, which is actively going to kill you. Rakia has a terminal illness. She needs a magic cure. And this is not a euthanasia story because we see older Rakia come back and confirm that she is alive and thriving and happy. And that is maybe a little too neat, but I am pretty okay with a story where a black girl gets an unambiguously happy ending, especially after the bullshit with the first servant. I'm still mad that he's not there with her. He should have ended up in the nebula too. They should have stolen him and put him in the buffer. I maintain that what was the point of him finding Rukia if that wasn't where that was going. I don't understand that episode at all. I hate it. It hasn't even aged well over the course of a month. No, it's only been... All right, let's move on. Aliens, all those who wander. Hashtag Gorn rights. It's definitely aliens. When they found a little girl, I was like, oh, we don't need to know her name. Her name is Newt. And then we had the literal chest burster and I was like oh we're not even going to be subtle here it's just blatantly aliens Uh Um, Sam Kirk got to play Hudson but I don't mind that I have said on this podcast before that I saw aliens much too young and (laughs) loved it and it's changed me so I have seen alien but I couldn't watch aliens because the VHS copy I had such poor sound mixing and my brother and sister were asleep so I couldn't turn it up loud enough to hear it so I've never actually seen aliens but now I have a giant tv and no children in the house so I should 
You have to see Aliens. Okay. And also, it has really good sound and really good soundtrack that's, like, important. It's an important character in the movie. So it's important to have good sound. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what we were doing in the 90s with our tiny TVs with tiny speakers. But overall, I really enjoyed All Those Who Wander up until the last 10 minutes, even as I was constantly thinking, but the Gorn are ascension species. How do we get from this where they're mindless monsters to Arena and the depiction of a walking, talking Gorn in Enterprise? This really bugs me. So, honestly, I think this is my favourite episode of the season. Yes. It was made for me. It was an Aliens redo, but in Star Trek. Yes. It had adorable little monsters that everyone hates, but I love. Mm-hmm. Chapel and La'an, which is interesting because they were on opposite sides of the spectrum, but both Chapel and La'an said lines that I would and have said they were both me like i just was Mm. watching going that's me (laughs) and then the hammer stuff i hate it Mm. on a storytelling level i hate it on a series level Mm -hmm. it was good it was presented well (laughs) it was well done it was well acted and well written and it was good for Uhura, I I really wish it hadn't happened. Yeah. I, like I said, was having problems with the episode, but I was overall enjoying it. And the problem with the depiction of the Gorn feels like something we can talk and argue about until eventually Akiva Goldsman gets the message and fixes it. I think the writer of this episode had like an interview where he talked about his headcanon about how it made sense. And I was like, yes. Dude, you literally wrote the script. This doesn't have to be head canon. <sighs> Could have written that in. Yeah. But then they killed Hammer, and looking at Akiva Goldsman's new trek, going back to the season two premiere of Discovery Brother, the depiction of mental illness and disability when he is in charge or in a senior position is constantly terrible. We have the Victorian insane asylum of Spock's psychiatric hospital in season two of Discovery. We do have the wonderful bit where Amanda talks about his learning disability and I think that is actually one, one, not terrible depiction of a disability in Mm -hmm. Akiva Goldsman's work or Goldsman adjacent because I don't know who wrote that. But it's Spock's mental health in season two. It's Hugh and the XBs in season one mm-hmm. of Picard. It's Yvette Picard and it's Agnes and the cure for mm-hmm. clinical depression is to be literally assimilated. And Or go to space. Or go, yeah. And this whole thing where the worst possible thing that can happen to Pike is that he becomes disabled. It feels like the purpose of a disabled character in Goldsman's work is to teach an able-bodied person an important lesson and then die. It happened with right. Hugh, and it happens here with Hema and Uhura, and I hate it. That's not good. Yeah. In fact, it's awful. It it's, really yeah. ruins a great episode. <laughs> and 
again, because I am a huge Aliens fan, as mm-hmm. soon as Hemmer was hit with the stuff, I was like, well, he's dead. I knew immediately how that was going to end. And this, I feel like that helped me in some ways because it wasn't a surprise, so it didn't hit me. I didn't cry. Mm. It was a lot like when Cat Cornwell died because I knew I saw where that was going and I turned to my cat and I said, I know where this is going. <laughs> it's going to be bad. Mm. And then I literally turned off of... Star Trek for months after that happened. Yeah, I remember. So it's bad because you become so invested in something and then to have the actual opposite effect. Mm. Like they wanted me to be sobbing and inspired by Hammer. Like it was definitely supposed to be a very inspiring death because he goes out and he's a hero. He gets the whole hero lighting and moment. And then he like literally jumps off a cliff like he's some kind of angel just like Yvette Picard (laughs) exactly and it's really offensive (laughs) because death isn't beautiful I don't understand why I have to say this yeah yeah look I've been a goth I I understand the appeal but this is not a series for goths and frankly I would just be happy with disabled characters getting to live and thrive and have really fantastic disabled lives. Which brings me to something I was waiting to the end of the season before I called this out as a nitpick, but through the whole season, whenever we've seen Hemma working, he is just using touchscreens. And the thing is, that technology doesn't work for blind people, and no amount of telepathy in the world is going to turn a touch screen into something that works for you. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining his mental link with his iPad. <laughs> not working for me. No, no. My mother's gentleman friend is blind and he uses an iPhone because iPhones have really good verbal interfaces and screen readers. And the lack of assistive technology for Hammer was an early sign that he was going to be a very tokenistic character. I just assumed, foolishly, that this was a first season oversight that they would fix later. And I know that the actor has said that he's not done with Star Trek, and people have taken that to mean that Hammer is coming back. All he says is that he is coming back, nothing about the character. And who is to say they're not going to keep on killing him? I mean, look, I think I would be equally offended if Hammer came back yes. at this point, because it's so... Why would you tell that story if then you're immediately going to reverse it? Like, yeah. I'm very happy that Hugh Colbert came back, but mm. he shouldn't have died in the first place. That, like, it doesn't matter that he mm. came back because he shouldn't have died in the first place. And, like, to me, I would bring Cat Cornwell back because her death had no impact whatsoever Meaning. on the series and didn't represent anything for her as a character. Whereas with Hemma, it like his end was built into him from the foundation and you know mm-hmm. Uhura's what is your purpose in life conversation and so despite the ableism i think right it's his, good for uhura or his death it's good for uhura's a, story yeah yeah not necessarily good for uhura no but what i was going to say was i have trouble comparing Hemmer's death with hugh colbers because with hugh it was a gay showrunner trying to tell a story that was meaningful to him and then realizing too late that 
he had not earned the trust of the audience to tell this story and pivoting really hard to fix it. Whereas this is an able-bodied writer disposing of a disabled character when he already has a long history of doing so with other disabled characters. Yeah, it's probably closer to the other Hugh. Borg Hugh, yes. Who has such an amazing story and starts a whole new story mm. in that series and then dies for no reason, <laughs> for cruelty. Yeah, because Borg Hugh was representing AIDS patients right down to Jonathan Del Arco's first audition. And mm -hmm. so killing him and cruelly as an abomination is especially horrible. At least with Hemmer, it's merely the old trope of the stoic disabled person giving themselves up to save the able-bodied. I hate it, but it's driven by apathy rather than hatred. So now I'm going to bring up the other thing <laughs> that I noticed in this episode or at least yes. thinking about this episode, but it's actually a through line throughout the entire season, and I don't understand it at all. Go. There is a weird theme going on in this season that is, you know, TLDR, children don't have rights. Yes, I saw your note <laughs> about that, and I thought, that is so smart of you, not the writers. I do not understand why that would be a theme, but it is very, it's visible from the beginning with Child Laan mm. and Child Spock and Child Supreme, because you think about it, they were betrothed at age seven and had no choice in that matter. Yeah. And are now having to learn how to have a relationship. <laughs> and there's obviously the first servant and Rukia, and then even in the last episode, there's that one kid, Pike meets the one kid mm. who is going to die. It's as if children are plot devices and objects, <laughs> not people. And this even goes to the Gorn children, the yes, Gorn babies. That, so my Gorn babies are the most extreme version mm. where they are not even treated as people by any definition of the term they are monsters mm. they are animals even though we know they're sentient they have space travel they apparently have hatchery planets planets or whatever so mm. it's like they corralled a bunch of other aliens into their planet to have their like that's kind of horrible but it means they're smart but right how is it that we are treating them as actual mindless monsters. Mm. You think about Deep Space Nine, where they come into custody of a Jem'Hadar child and Odo tries to raise it. And we learn more about the Jem'Hadar and that child is treated as a person and the Gorn are monsters. I was thinking about this note of yours about children not having rights for the last couple of days and it struck me... We've talked about how Voyager is the most family-friendly, the most kid-friendly of the Star Treks, not just because there are kid characters, although that's part of it. And I think the thing is that Star Trek in the 90s, particularly when Michael Piller was in charge, was very conscious of being a family drama that people would watch with their children. And I think in some cases that really held it back from telling good stories, but they were conscious that they had 
an audience that was diverse in age. Whereas Strange New Worlds in particular, because it's also quite sexually graphic compared with Discovery and Picard, is not a Star Trek for children at all. And so there's not even a thought of taking the young audience into account because they don't want to have a young audience. But the thing is, like, I don't have children. I don't spend a lot of time with children. And yet I am aware that children are people. So I do have children Mm -hmm. and I do spend a lot of time with children. And the worrying part is that this is also happening in society, that it is not actually unique to Star Trek, that children are losing rights all across this country. They're being used as props for the adults to win an argument against the other adults. And it's really troubling to me. My brother wrote this book where he said that 12 year olds should be allowed to drop out of school if they want to, mm-hmm. instead of 18 year olds and 16 year olds if you get your parents' permission. Mm-hmm. And he got a lot of flack for that. I mean, I disagree, but I assume he has a purpose <laughs> for making this argument. The idea is that people who are not learned are still worth something. Yes. <laughs> and that they could learn a skill that might not be English lit. They might not read Shakespeare. That doesn't mean that they're dumb. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they don't have something to provide. They maybe need a different kind of school. And so I think that why he wrote this book is because we are barreling towards the opposite. <laughs> we are yeah. saying not only do you have to go to school, you don't have to stay in school, you also then have to go to college and you have to sell your soul in order to do it. Mm-hmm. And you have to know exactly what you want to do when you are nine and going into middle school, because otherwise you've ruined your life. But also you have to survive the school shooters and drill endlessly right. and right. please save us from climate change. And, and also you're not allowed to learn what you want to learn. You're, yeah. You have to be taught these things that these three people who uh, go to church every Sunday, I've decided is the acceptable things for you to learn. In Florida, they, which Florida is like a trash fire now in mm-hmm. terms of education, like 100% across the board. But the most recent thing I read about Florida is that they are not allowing teachers to have classroom libraries <laughs> because they can't make sure that those teachers are giving the right books. Mm. And so they just aren't allowed to give any books at all. And it's not just not trusting teachers. It's also not trusting students. Because certainly when I was a kid, and I grew up in a very conservative family, so I would read books that had messages that my parents would not approve of, and I would go, oh, that's wrong. I'm reading it, but I'm reading it critically, and I know it's wrong. That's my entire argument about Twilight. It was super popular with 14-year-old girls. Mm. Let the 14-year-old girls read the book and it is not going to ruin their lives. They are not going to decide that they want to live that. They are smart enough to understand the difference between fiction and reality. Right. There are actually no vampires. (laughs) And also stuff that you enjoy in a fictional romance is not going to be appealing in a real life one. Thank you. Please thank you. None of the ships that I ship are healthy or good or the kind of relationship that I would want to have. Mm. This is getting into a wider discussion, but as children have been deprived of rights and independence, we also see younger adults 
depriving themselves of those rights. And you see it in fandom where it's like, I'm a 23-year-old minor, how dare you write this fic and post it where I can see it. And it's really complicated and it's depressing. And it is sad that Star Trek is playing into this by depersonalising children. And it is, again, only Strange New Worlds. We certainly don't see this with Discovery where... Do we have children in Discovery aside from... Adira is the closest, I'd say. Adira, who is very young, and Book's late nephew. And that is a series that killed a child, and we didn't hate it because Book did everything in his power, which was limited to save him, and had to watch the planet be destroyed. It really is like a a good version of the end of Lift Us Up Where Suffering Cannot Reach. And then Book spends the entire season grieving and blaming himself and seeking justice. And trying to fix it. Yes! (laughs) Trying to do something about it. He literally makes it his life's purpose to make sure that never happens again. Yes. Pike literally just wanders away from the planet and is sad about his own life (laughs) for multiple episodes. This is because Book is a better person than Pike. I mean, Book is definitely a better person than Pike. But most people are better people than Pike. Jumping ahead just to the end, not the very end of Equality of Mercy, but to the before he comes back from the future Mm. end of Equality of Mercy, where... The Romulan commander says, you know, I've accepted my fate. And then yes. the camera comes in close on Pike and he's like, oh, I have to accept my fate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was the lesson of this entire season. And then he he does. It gets driven home because the whole Spock thing happens. And then his future self is like, so Spock's the most important person in the universe. Mm. And he's the only one who can save Romulan souls. And so therefore you can't do this. And the thing is that by accepting his fate, Pike also accepts the fate of that kid at the beginning of the episode. That kid is gonna die. So it's, yeah, maybe the goods of the many outweigh the needs of the few, but also why did we have to meet this child in order to learn that you're gonna sacrifice him? Also, if Pike simply ensures that child and the other he can't save, is assigned somewhere else that day, does that mean those kids are going to go on to, like, murder Spock? Pike says that there is no change he can make where everyone is saved, but I just don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think that Pike is just wrong. Yes. Why are we listening to future Pike? Just same with, why are we listening to future Jane? Why why do we listen to these people? (laughs) There's clearly something wrong with them. This should be a Lower Decks episode, any time your captain comes back from the future to teach you a lesson, you should just put them in a cupboard and ignore them. Okay. Oh, I only have one more thing to say about all those who wander, and it's that I don't feel like the Hema-Uhura relationship was sold enough to justify Hema's death or its effect on Uhura. Because they were only in one other episode together. Well, there's also their first interaction where she's really ableist and he calls her out. But it's, again, disabled people don't just exist to teach able-bodied people lessons. And I liked their relationship. I loved that Uhura had a mentor who is not a comms officer. And yet, I just wanted to see more of it. I wanted more Hema. Killing Hema was a mistake because he was great. 
Uhura fixes her station in multiple episodes. So yeah. it's actually a great building up of why does Uhura have all this engineering knowledge? Oh, because of Hammer. That's great. But right. The fact is, I have no idea how much time has gone by since the first episode and the last episode. It could be three weeks or it could be a year. I do not know. So I don't know how long she was there, but we only actually saw them interact in that one, like in that, have that relationship in that one episode. And then again, in this episode, mm. like those are, that's their times. And yet at his funeral, she's like, he was like my dad. <laughs> Yeah. Which again, that's great, but it is not earned, as you said. Yeah. And then my note, my other note about the funeral, Ortegas was Hemmer's friend. Glad we learned that at his funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the gaunt stuff, the worst parts of all those who wander were the deaths, because then we have Cadet Redshirt and Lieutenant Dead Guy Walking. Duke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's it was like, also like he was the butt of every joke until well, he died, <laughs> and Annika, then he died. Annika, he was fat. He was an overweight Starfleet officer, and they can only serve <laughs> one purpose. A disabled character is here to teach an able-bodied person a lesson, and a fat person is here to be the butt of the jokes. Do we want to talk about a Spock and Chapel and how they stole Spock and Uhura's plotting and uh, camera work? <laughs> Yes, I saw a gift set which highlighted that the embrace between Chapel and Spock at the end of that episode is literally like framing identical. and gesture. It's identical to Spock and Uhura in the first Star Trek movie after Vulcan is destroyed. And I shared this thought with a friend of mine who really loves Quinto Spock and she pointed out there is one difference and that is that Quinto Spock is so gentle and tender when he touches Uhura, as if he knows that as a Vulcan he has terrible strength and he could harm her. And there's none of that care with Peck Spock. Mm -hmm. But either way, I think taking this moment with a black woman and giving it to a white woman in a plotline which involves basically an emotional affair where Spock is cheating on an Asian woman, the optics are bad. I love Chapel and Spock, mm. which is literally the opposite of TOS where I hate Chapel and Spock but I love Chapel and Spock I loved them in this episode but that was the first moment where I said oh Chapel is me <laughs> was when she says it's good to get mad sometimes yes because not to be me but that's my main issue with the Jedi and the yeah. Vulcans is that if you suppress something long enough it eventually takes over which like happens in this episode mm. she like me is saying sometimes allowing yourself to be angry when your anger is justified is acceptable and yes. you should let that happen but he doesn't actually learn that lesson here because <laughs> he lets it go in order to go after the evil gorn monsters mm -hmm. and then he can't get it back in control because he's so upset at everything that happened, probably including letting his anger go at the evil Gorn monsters. Yes. And she embraces him and it's an important scene, but he doesn't like in the, in 2009, they have a relationship. Yes. And she 
is there and she's saying literally let me take care of you because that's what you need yeah and he does he accepts that and he says yes please take care of me and then she says what do you need for me and he, he says i need you to keep doing your job now you've taken care of me now we're gonna go do our job and then we can come back to this like they have a healthy relationship right but he does none of that with shackle they have like you say their entire relationship is tainted by it being this weird she's feelings for him and he maybe has feelings for her mm. but he's completely mm. unavailable and he's not supposed to have feelings anyway because he's a jedi so it's all messed up and none of that foundation that is in 2009 is there which is amazing because i think that's the scene in 2009 where we learn about the spokahura relationship yes. but there's so much more in the writing and I cannot believe I'm praising the writing of that movie. And yet, no. <laughs> my beef... Don't is... worry, I'm going to make fun of it in the next... Okay, <laughs> when we get to the next episode. My beef with Spock Chapel here is that I don't love unrequited love stories. And we know, because we've seen TOS, that Spock is never going to return Chapel's feelings and, in fact, is going to become less emotionally available and so I just want to say, Christine, cut your losses now and don't hang around for this guy. He doesn't deserve you. I, I have something about that in the next one, too, once oh, we get good. to the quality of mercy. Well, I have so much to say about quality of mercy. We've, we've done a speed run of the other episodes, so let's talk about balance of error. That's really good. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. I'm up to two puns this year. I'm really proud. <laughs> so I hate this episode. Yeah, this was terrible. I just, like, everything. I don't have the visceral reaction I have to suffering. Mm. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But I have very little positive to say about this episode. I think that it misunderstands Balance of Terror. Mm -hmm. It misunderstands Spock and the Romulans. <laughs> it misunderstands all of these characters. Like, every character <laughs> is weirdly out of character it misunderstands jim kirk like yes i i do not understand what happened here it just feels very lazy and completely off center of what it was i assume what it was trying to do i watched the enterprise finale on tuesday and then a quality of mercy on thursday and they made a really good double set because they're both episodes where the current show and the current characters are pushed aside in favor of gimmicky nostalgia to the detriment mm -hmm. of not only the new characters but the original work as well and it's just really depressing i hate what it does to the romulans yes I hate what it does to the Romulans. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm actually really mad about how Kirk is written and played. Because the new guy, Paul Wesley, he's... Paul Wesley. He's no Chris Pine, and he's not even a William Shatner. And every time he tries to look like he's doing some serious strategic planning, he looks like a ginger cat who doesn't have the brain cell. Like... Like jorts... I would not insult Jorts that way, but I did get a Captain Jorts T. Kirk vibe. Captain <laughs> Jorts Okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> because actual real Kirk 
is a jorts. Yes, I was just going to say, jorts and Jean are Kirk and Spock. Yes, perfect. And this was not that. I called him Discount Tom Paris. Yeah, I can see that. He had none of the Kirk stuff and all of the obnoxious Tom Paris stuff. Like nothing. Tom Paris goes on a an arc and becomes a better human. And this was like the worst parts of Tom Paris. Minus the womanizing. Attempting to be charming, you know, yes. attempting to be charming. It's almost shocking to me that he didn't hit on anybody. That would have required a woman to have a substantial role in the story. And obviously that wasn't going to happen. We didn't even get a Janice Rand to stand beside Pike at the wedding and bring him coffee and moral support. First of all, justice for Janice Rand. Second of all, the reason I'm shocked that Kirk doesn't hit on anybody is because they misunderstand him so much. And Mm. that's my main issue with Fanon Kirk, that everyone is sort of obsessed with that he's a womanizer. And it's like, no, he isn't. (laughs) What, What part of actual Kirk is a womanizer? And the thing is, Kirk in Balance of Terror. I was going to rewatch the episode, but I just read the transcript for the episode where we discussed it instead. Kirk is basically Pike in Balance of Terror. He's cautious, mm-hmm. he's introspective, he's deeply weighed down by the responsibility for all the lives that he has under his command. Right. And even for the Romulan lives, he is reluctant to act without Starfleet's authority and at every step of the way he is afraid he is going to start a war that is not this guy is flippant and like discount Tom Paris like I I said like I say this as someone who likes Tom Paris but (laughs) he certainly doesn't make a good first impression yeah, and he's also impulsive in a way that screws everything up. Whereas Jim Kirk is thoughtful and then does the thing. Mm, like everything mm. that Kirk does, he does he's not impulsive. He's very sure of himself and he's very he trusts his intuition, but he doesn't like just decide I'm going to go do this crazy thing except yes. in this episode. In Discovery's The War Without the War Within, Kat describes her Lorca as measured and reasonable. And we all go, really, Kat? Is that what you think? But that is also a description of actual canon James Kirk for the first two seasons. And I'm like, if they wanted this asshole warrior guy, Gary Mitchell is right there. Because we've talked about how Mitchell's death is a catalyst for Kirk in that, A, it's the beginning of his real friendship with Spock, but also mm-hmm. in some ways he takes on his late friend's traits. So this is a good place to bring up that I, again, I was watching and I was really paying attention to Kirk the second time around because I wanted to, I was, I just really disliked it the first time. Mm. And so I wanted, I was like, how can I make this work for me? Now, it, he's never going to be my Chris Pine. And the thing is that my Chris Pine Kirk totally is impulsive. And it's why I love him. But also (laughs) he had a completely different upbringing. He had a completely different childhood. And so he's reckless because he cares so much and he need he needs to fix everything and he had I get it all of that makes sense for that Kirk. Oh my god. Please write a fic about AOS Hammer and Kirk. Oh that sounds fine. Okay. But this is supposed to be the Kirk that in Balance of Terror, McCoy says, 
don't destroy Kirk. Like he has this big thing. I love that whole scene between Kirk and McCoy and Kirk is like, I I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. And McCoy is like, trust your measured self and think about mm -hmm. it and be who you're meant to be. And so what I came up with was, so this Kirk in this balance of terror is who Kirk is without Spock and McCoy. <laughs> like, is that what we're saying? Is that where we're going with this? I can certainly see that. And maybe this is the Kirk who has still has Gary Mitchell in his life being a bad influence. Although La'an is his first officer and I can't actually imagine anyone La'an would hate more than Gary Mitchell. But Well, if Gary Mitchell was a Gorn. Well, it's just hard to appreciate anything good in this episode when I have to work so hard to reconcile what is happening on screen with Balance of Terror, an episode which I know quite well and like very much. Balance of Terror is probably my favourite season one episode of the original series. It's in my top five for the series overall. And Equality of Mercy was just disappointing. And you and I are fanfiction writers. We are not intrinsically opposed to revisiting stories or telling the same story in a different way or dropping a different captain into a situation and seeing what happens. Like, this is our bread and butter. That's one of my favorite things. I, lo I love Echoes. Okay, so I loved that La'an, Farragut La'an, looks like Una. Yes. <laughs> I was like, whoa, you don't look like La'an anymore. You look like Una. That's mm. cool. Mm. That's, that was all she did in the entire episode, and it was very interesting to me. Once again, we can't have women in this episode. I think Jara from Women at Warp did her usual roundup of yes. passing the Bechdel test and this and episode this failed. failed. <laughs> so Spock's sacrifice, that's like Spock sacrificed early. He did his whole Wrath of Khan thing 20 years early, but he also, he's in the torpedo tube, in the Jeffries tube, like Kirk in Generations. It yes. had even very similar, again, framing. Mm -hmm. And so there's that. It's like, there's all these really interesting ways of nodding to other stories and seeing how things can be different and the same at the same mm. time. And yet when the Romulan commander has the exact same lines to Pike, exactly what he says to Kirk, yeah. but in this one, then he is immediately blown up by the Romulans and they start a war. <laughs> it's like, wait, that's not how it's like, no, what? No, <laughs> All of that was bad. It's like when you're playing a video game and no matter what type of player character you are, the NPCs always interact with you the same way. And the Romulan commander was a much richer and more complex character than merely an NPC who delivers the right lines at the right time. It's disappointing. Oh, what? Okay, so now I'm going to bring in 2009 again, as I yes. promised. Yes. And first I just want to say, when the Romulan commander and Pike first talk, they have this sort of, again, he has the same lines where it's like, we could be friends. And it made me think of 2009 when they meet up with Nero mm. and he says, I'm Christopher Pike of the Enterprise. And Nero comes on the screen and says, hello, Christopher. Yes. That's like my favorite thing. I, it's so ridiculous. Like everything about, <laughs> everything about the whole movie, really, especially Nero is ridiculous. But I love how absurd that Romulan character is. And so... It was interesting to get those same vibes because he did seem to have this 
more personal mm. relationship. Mm. And so it started me thinking about, okay, how does, because again, it is the same people who are making both things. And so what are the differences and what are the similarities? And I realized that my, the one thing I defend Star Trek 2009 a lot, like yes. all the time. And I count it as one of my top tier Trek movies because most of them are bad. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> and yet the one thing that I really don't like about it is how their solution to their problem is we're going to just blow everybody up. Like Spock mm. and Kirk, they say, hey, Nero, we're going to blow you guys up. And he's like, I, I, I refuse to surrender. And they say, okay. And then they just blow him up. I don't like that at all because that seems to be anathema <laughs> to Kirk and Spock. Yes. That's not what they do. But that's what happens here too. <laughs> so it's apparently that's how these, you know, Kirk and Spock are both on Ortega's side. Yeah. So yeah. I have no great reverence for Gene Roddenberry's vision, but Gene Roddenberry's vision was also DC Fontana's vision and Gene Kuhn's vision, and none of them would be on board with these characterizations. And speaking of 2009 Star Trek, at the end of that movie, Greenwood Pike is in a wheelchair, and then he's killed in the next movie in Into Darkness. And I have always said it is complete bullshit that he cannot command a starship from a wheelchair and that then he's killed off so Kirk can survive. I'm pretty sure he dies saving Kirk's life. And I wrote a whole fic where one of the elements was my rage. It was a discovery fic, it was a cat fic, but one of the elements mm -hmm. in the background was my rage at that plot development. And yet, compared with the way Pike's injuries are handled in Strange New Worlds, I'm suddenly really missing the less ableist days of <laughs> Greenwood Park. Oh my goodness. I mean, I, w I will, like, definitely Bruce Greenwood is, has rocketed back up into, uh -huh. he's, he's the best Pike. I, at the beginning of this series, I was wavering, but sorry. Yeah, no. You failed. Greenwood Pike is where it's at. Pike's realization that it's important for him to be disabled so that Spock isn't disabled slash dead. Because as we know, a disabled Vulcan could not possibly it's negotiate peace ridiculous. with the Klingons or the It's Romulans. It's absurd in Pike, like mm. 250 years from now, they should be able to fix him better and give him the ability. Like, but the thing is that Stephen Hawking had the ability to talk to people for yeah. like 40 years and and changed the course of humanity or whatever. And that was now, that was mm -hmm. 40 years ago. So there's no reason for yeah. like- I will like, have to no. double check this because I might need to cut it out if it's wrong, but I think he even managed to cheat on his wife. And so this brings us back to what we were saying in season two, that Pike's fate is bad and has no place in modern canon and really has had no place in modern canon since the 1980s. I agree with you that it's absurd that Pike has to give up the Enterprise because he's in a wheelchair, mm. but it's also, he's not in a wheelchair in the second movie. Oh he yeah. Got better. I forgot about that. I have only seen so... Into Darkness once. I did not particularly care for it. Yeah. So like, it's ridiculous for Pike. Mm -hmm. It is impossible for me to believe that Spock would not be able to be Spock mm. from a wheelchair. Look at Ariane. He is a telepath. 
even if there is cognitive damage, the are Vulcans talking? are telepaths, guys. They're, and the Vulcans canonically have the ability to go into a family member's brain and fix it. Yes. <laughs> so therefore, even if there was cognitive damage, his entire family could come together and try to do something about it. It doesn't even have to be a biological family member because right? Janeway can do that for Tuvok. So <laughs> therefore, nothing, there is no, I refuse to accept that Spock couldn't be Spock. Mm. with horrific injuries. injuries. I also think, and this is very cynical of me, but Spock's injuries at the end of the episode are basically the worst we've ever seen in Star Trek. They are grotesque. And I am very sure that they were done that way so that the audience's Im immediate thought would be, it's better that he just dies than having to live like that. So not to bring in ER again. We're almost ready to start season two. But there are multiple episodes of ER where someone is horrifically burned mm -hmm. and is going to die. There's like a 9% chance that they will even survive. And yet they spend the entire episode and in some cases, multiple episodes trying to save that person's life. And even if they can't save their life, they go out of their way to make sure that they get to see everybody that they love and that they like get closure or whatever mm -hmm. and do all of this stuff. And it's just, again, I don't understand how in the future they wouldn't like, Chapel shouldn't be sitting there crying about Spock. No, <laughs> she should, she should have a whole army of stuff. nurses doing nurse stuff. I don't think Chapel <laughs> is very good at her job. And she, she's a biochemist, she's, a, she's a, a microbiologist. This is literally her thing, is to take cells from one part of you and put them somewhere else and make them work. That's part of what she does. I am extremely upset about the entire, the whole thing that happens. I hate it. I am again, decanonize the menagerie. And also, what even, what is this lesson that he's supposed to learn? He's supposed to learn that someone else's life is more important than his life. He's a Starfleet captain. He should have that lesson. You should already know that. Also, this whole idea that only Spock can do these things, this was a problem with Picard too. Akiva Goldsman really loves the great man theory of history. And with all due respect, I'm calling bullshit. Okay, so here we're going to get into my what happens with Chaffel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if Spock dies, so in this reality, Spock dies and chapel goes to tell to pring because she's the only person who even thinks of it because everyone else is grieving that's fine mm -hmm. and they bond over their sorrow yep and then guess what they go and help the romulans right <laughs> chapel and to pring go and help the romulans the way that eliza hamilton did everything that alexander hamilton was gonna do Oh my god, I love that. But also, like, yes, Spock was one of the driving forces behind the Kittimer Accords with the Klingons, but he wasn't the only one. And, for example, Sarek was there. And with all due respect to the Unification Two-Parter, which I love far more than it deserves, but the Romulans never needed Vulcans to save them. The Romulans have always been on course to save themselves. And reunification can happen without Spock. 
Like people are saying that Navarre would not exist without Spock, and I don't believe that. I don't believe it either. Topol could come out of retirement and reunify Vulcan and Romulus. Two so could do it many... standing on his head. <laughs> Varric, not so I... much. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that again, and I say this all the time in like that what's the word? We are living through something times. Um I'm gonna call it difficult. I don't think that's the right mm, quote, but we're living through difficult challenging, times. Challenging, nightmarish. And <laughs> nightmarish, it's good. And so you think about what am I doing? What am I doing to try to make it less nightmarish? Because this is my opportunity. Right. If I ever wanted to be a hero, to be a rebel, to do something for a cause, to to save something, this is it, right? right. It doesn't get any worse. If you've ever wondered what you would do in, if you were in Nazi Germany, this is your chance to find out. <laughs> this is your chance. And... The truth is that being the great man is not it. That is not how you affect anything. It is not how you save the world. Being an anonymous person who does stuff that they don't get any credit for Hmm. is how you do it. And so even if Spock is the figurehead or the leader or the, the hero who solves the Romulan problem and brings peace to Romulans and Vulcans, that doesn't mean that there isn't a thousand other people that were there with him to do it too. And we see that in unification. On both sides, including Romulans. In unification, (laughs) there are young Romulans who have taught themselves Surak's logic and are working themselves even before they meet Spock to do more for Romulus and Vulcan. In fact, I think the main impact of Spock dying young is that we don't get the Kelvin-verse. Yeah. And the thing is, I just don't understand why Pike can't take his promotion and get that training job, and then that morning he looks at the J-class training ship and goes, I have a bad feeling about this. Let's run a diagnostic down to the smallest molecule today and do this training tomorrow, and... They find the problem with the baffle plates and they save the ship and they save everyone and then Pike just keeps living his life and being a guy and teaching people and history doesn't change because history doesn't pivot on the acts of one Starfleet captain. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. Okay. Intellectually, I find it interesting that Pike is a massive Mary Sue and yet this is a story about him finding out he is not the chosen one. But in execution, I don't love it. I like that that the, I don't know. I think that there are very interesting things that could happen mm. with the bones of this story. I just think that they went in, they, they just, they spent too much time literally recreating Balance of Terror shot for shot instead of yeah. looking at what would be different. And yeah. I just, I and also I hate that in multiple episodes and also in other series another new trek series people not fighting not not shooting first people like Mm, mm. holding out a hand instead of a gun are somehow wrong right that was (laughs) 
interesting in <laughs> the Vulcan Hello, but we don't need to keep doing it over and over again. And I guess this comes back to my brother's point that this is Star Trek for Republicans. Just to bring it back to Pike just quickly, last weekend, by coincidence, I found a comic from 1994 when DC had the Star Trek license. And first, the comics of that era are so dense, like an IDW comic would stretch this story out over three issues. But mm -hmm. it's basically movie-era Spock goes back to Talos 4 to tell Pike, good news, the Federation has figured out how to fix you. Not Vina, just you. And Pike is very tempted but then he's like, but I have my wife and we have our son and we are literally rebuilding Talos and we are helping the Talosians renew their culture. And yes, I'm disabled and this able body is basically an assistive device, but my disabled life has so much value. I'm not leaving it behind just for a cure. And it was amazing. Like, it's 30 years old. The language around disability is would not fly today. But the story was so great. And Spock is such an asshole. Like, it really captured that side of him. It was a perfect antidote to a quality of mercy. Yeah, where I mentioned my caps lock and my exclamation points. Mm. <laughs> One of the caps lock was, I am begging you to hire a disability consultant. Again. Followed up. Yeah, again, followed up with, seriously, do we have to crowdfund one? <laughs> that, that's where I'm at. Do we have to have a GoFundMe to buy the Star Trek producers a disability consultant? Because yeah. otherwise we're just going to keep getting this. And next weekend is San Diego Comic-Con and no one has responded to my call for someone to get up and ask Alex Kurtzman this question. Do we have anything else to say about Equality of Mercy? Well, there's the Una. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. I forgot about Una. Much like the writers. Well, so did the show. Yes. <laughs> My issue, I, we don't know what's going to happen because that's second season. So Yes. I'm not, I don't have much to say about the Una problem other than that there is one. And also that this is what happened to Michael. This is what happened to Carol Freeman. It's really just exciting that now it's a white woman facing cultural justice. No, it's a justice. white woman. And that kind of ties in with the whole stuff about reproductive rights in the US, where it's only a dystopia when it happens to white women. I understand that Rebecca Romaine has family commitments in LA and she doesn't want to move to Toronto and that's why she's not in every episode but I really think over the whole season they could have used her more thoughtfully they could have maybe not forgotten for most of the season that she is an alien pretending to be human and that impacts the way she looks at the world and I'm curious to see where they go next season but I'm also scared I'm worried that this is how they're going to write Rebecca Romaine out because Una is the only legacy character who isn't safe, who can be killed off or removed or in prison for life. I would like to think that she's in prison for 24 hours and then Ash Tyler turns up and goes, hey, would you like a job? I would accept that. I like the idea of Federation intelligence actually being run by aliens in disguise. <laughs> That's kind of great. I love it. I'm down with mm. that. That please. I want that to happen now because frankly, Una's too good for this show. Yeah. So get her on a good one. Also, other shows don't seem to have this problem, 
but balancing an ensemble of this size with episodic writing and giving everyone a, a day in the spotlight is really not working for Strange New Worlds. Obviously there's the Ortegas problem, but as you've said, only Pike and in my opinion Spock have had a consistent amount of screen time and it's really disappointing. I think they either need a longer season or a different format or a smaller ensemble. But then, like, I just finished season three of the Umbrella Academy, and that is a very large ensemble and a short season, and yet everyone had their due. They introduced new characters mm -hmm. and fleshed them out. Why does Star Trek... That's, that's season four of Stranger Things as well. Yeah! Though they had very long episodes. I think they cheated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were cheating. Oh, yeah. What was your favourite episode of this season? So my favorite episode was 90% of all those who watch her. <laughs> but not all of all those mm. who watch her. That works really well because my favorite episode is Memento Mori. Give us Gorn stuff and three-dimensionalize the Gorn and we'll be happy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Least favorite? It's gotta be Lift Us Up Where Suffering can't find us or whatever the actual title is also a bad title i will say i remember we liked the title when we discussed that episode i think your feelings have soured i like it as a as a, a i like it as a title when i know what it is but i don't like it as referencing the episode yeah and i've now completely become mm. unable to actually keep it all in mind it's no for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. No. Which I could not tell you what happened to that episode, but uh, I will always remember the title. That is McCoy's romance episode. Yes. Uh, His romance episode with someone who lives in like a hollow planet. Yeah. Just and may or may not be dying. Oh, I forgot about that. My least favorite episode is The Quality of Mercy. Lift Us Up is close on its tail, but I actually think A Quality of Mercy makes Lift Us Up worse in that it proves your theory. <laughs> and fear that Pike's sadness theory. about the first servant is actually his sadness about his own fate. Like, it's not all about uh, you, Christopher. He's the worst. He's so bad. Archer is the worst, but at least Archer is not going around making everyone else's suffering about himself. There's a lot to be said for that. Right. Yeah. Oh, speaking of stupid deaths, this is about Enterprise and the Enterprise finale, but I thought I would enjoy Trip's okay. death because he's my least favourite character, but actually I think it is as stupid and pointless as Kat's death. Both of them die because of Usher violations. Yes, they do. And also, it's you can sit there going, you could have done this and this mm. to get out of this. Mm. This was unnecessary, it's framed as a hero moment, and yet is not heroic, it's just stupid. No. So in that sense, they are even worse than Hemmer's death. Who is your favourite character? It's Chapel. Yeah. Nurse Chapel is my favourite character. I know that she's not really new. But I think she's so different from Major Barrett's character. I don't know how to choose a favourite character because there's Una and there's La'an and there's Chapel mm. and there's Uhura. Mm. And... All good. I agree. And Mabenga and Hammer. So basically I have six favourite yeah. characters and everyone else is just whatevs. Do we have Very to good. ask? And least favourite? Ortegas. <laughs> Although Pike is getting close and I have to say Sam Kirk is not far behind. And I just want to flag that <laughs> in 
the Gorn episode when Sam Kirk goes on his mm-hmm. racist rampage against Spock and mm-hmm. Pike is just mm, knock it off. And then the next episode where Ortegas is like, so are we going to talk about the pointy eared elephant in the room? In neither case mm-hmm. does Pike rise to the very low level of keep your bigotry in your quarters. Yeah. He doesn't even clear that bar. Again, Pike is the worst. Pike, so it became very obvious in the final episode where he was even calling Uhura by her first name. Yes. That Pike is like a bro captain (laughs) where he just is very, you know, we're all friends here and we all get to have family dinner together and there's no hierarchy Mm. and it's just at a certain point you step in and you tell people to stop bullying your officers yes yes (laughs) like it's starting to give me vibes of this workplace is a family which generally ends up meaning this workplace is going to exploit you and right exactly sort of related but pike serves meat at every single meal he cooks except for his leftovers dinner with Captain Battelle. And, like, for that alone, I side-eye him. Like, we know Spock is vegetarian. Yes. Humans can also be vegetarians. Not every meal has to have meat. But he is a horseback-riding cowboy, and so, of course, he's yeah. got his bacon. Archer as the all-American captain is why I didn't take to him at first, and now we've done it to Pike too. Not to defend Archer. I knew you were going to defend Archer. (laughs) But they have their dinner, like their officers' dinners are a big part of Enterprise, and I find that charming. And yet we specifically see T'Pol's meals are different, that they are vegetarian that they are Vulcan and they apologize when they have something that sh- that is like weird to her and they're like oh they don't make fun of her eating it they, they like learn something about it in the early episodes they're like oh you don't eat with your hands that's weird but they get over it and it feels like Pike doesn't even go right. that far you just don't get it and and also talking about Sam Kirk and Spock and that moment what really stood out to me with that moment was that he was pretty much using the same words that McCoy uses. Mm. And everybody loves the Spock and McCoy relationship. And we even have said that the difference between Pulaski making fun of Data is that there is like a different level that it's not bullying when McCoy does it. But I, I don't know, when Sam Kirk did it, it was definitely bullying. It made me like McCoy less <laughs> because even though they're like very it's very different and there's like time and there's relationship mm. and there's there's nuance but it just it gave me like a sour feeling towards that relationship because they use the same words. McCoy gets away with a lot because DeForest Kelly is a better actor than most charming. in any era and yes he's charming <laughs> and he is able to convey that he does not actually think less of Spock mean it yeah i think that's true that's what it is it's the and subtext Spock teases him back it is reciprocal it's not reciprocal with sam and it's cruel and it's complicated by the fact that sam is a xenoanthropologist and frankly should know better could you imagine michael burnham going on a rant like this right isn't sam kirk on this mission to do 
Gorn research or something. Like, isn't that his job? Yeah, apparently. Isn't that what he should be doing? Yeah. So why is he, instead of doing Gorn research, he's yelling at Spock and understanding the basics of Vulcan. <laughs> Maybe the reason the Federation reality. doesn't know anything about the Gorn is because Sam is not good at his job. Sam Kirk's not good at his job is a valid theory. Yes. What do you want in season two? Better show. <laughs> um, what I want in season two is for Una to actually have a plot, yeah. I guess. I don't even, no, it doesn't even have to be an arc, but I just want her to, I wanted, I'm hoping that the fact that she's been arrested means that we're going to learn more about her and we're going to have a discussion of all of her stuff. That would be nice. And I... I want I want more to bring in Cybok and mm. Stan, and to bring's cool job. Yes, and I guess Captain Angel can come too. And also, Una referred to Starfleet recovery assistance. Yes, which was you know a word a euphemism for therapy. That sounds like a fancy word for Zoom therapy. I was super into Starfleet recovery assistance. I want to know more of that. Oh, I've just figured out what your answer to what Katrina Cornwell is doing right now will be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what I want in season two is better plots for Una and plots for Chapel that don't revolve around her love life in any way and that mm -hmm. let her spend time with characters other than Spock. I guess I want what You know instead have... we're going to get Corby. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And I would like Uhura to have plot lines about joy and life instead of grief and sadness and death. I would like, I would, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm me, but I would really love there to be less trauma discussion <laughs> because... Um, this makes sense to me because the thing is they're not doing it very well. Right. Everyone has a really traumatic, horrible backstory or future story mm. and... We're not going to discuss that in any way. We're not going to actually see Starfleet recovery assistance. We're just going to wave at it and say, that happened. Mm. And Uhura's, it, it bothers me that Uhura joined Starfleet because her parents died and now she's decided to stay in Starfleet because Hemmer died. Right. Like, that is not a great reason. In fact, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to make life choices when you have just been traumatized right they should not have even accepted her application they should have said go to university and come back in a few years when this is behind you but also she's a linguist she is so good at making connections with people and hammer talks about it in his final scene this is somehow pathological which footage not found but that alone is a reason to join starfleet and the trauma thing, you know, we complained about how Discovery executed it, but Discovery's portrayal of trauma is light years ahead of Strange New Worlds. And overall, Strange New Worlds just feels like a step backwards. I just think that they need, again, I just think they need, I think they need new eyes on this. You're right. They need a disability consultant, and I think they need someone to... You know, on old school Doctor Who, there was the script editor role, and sometimes he, because it was always a him, would write the scripts, but more often he was reading them and polishing and editing 
that's what they need. And if the showrunner isn't doing it, they need to get mm-hmm. someone else to take that role. Because Goldsman right. seems quite good at like practical day-to-day side of showrunning, but I don't think he's good at the creative side. And I think there is no shame in outsourcing the editorial side to someone who's better at it. I've said this many times in, in many fandoms that when people are successful, mm. which New Trek has been successful, yeah. clearly. Wildly. There are so many Treks right now. When someone is successful, people stop questioning them. Yes. Or confronting them. And that is inevitably bad. Someone needs to ask these questions. And yeah, it's not as if there's a lack of moving parts in modern Star Trek, but this part is getting a bit squeaky. Annika, where is Katrina Cornwell right now? She's doing a Starfleet recovery assistance. <laughs> She's totally yes. in charge of that. Oh, She's yeah. like, I fed an Admiral. It was very stressful. I enjoyed it, but I need a break. So now mm. I'm going to step back from the Admiralty and I'm going to take over Starfleet recovery assistance. But also she's still an Admiral and she's using those powers oh, to right. focus exclusively on... She's just on, not like yeah. on the board. She's not doing the <laughs> She strategic. doesn't have to go to the Admiral meetings anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. All of the power, none of the responsibility. <laughs> Except the responsibility for Starfleet's mental health, which is not nothing. Like, have well, you seen these people? That's important. <laughs> that's a uh, different kind of responsibility. And she can't do worse. She really, really can't. <laughs> I think that she is in a geothermal hot spring on a planet that looks an awful lot like Iceland. And she's been in for a while and she's been thinking about getting out. And then she sees a shuttle overhead and it comes into land and out comes Admiral April. And he says, it feels like all I do these days is pull people away from leave, but I have a job for you. I don't know what the job is, so stay tuned. Mostly I just like the hot spring bit. Cool. I have to say, I really enjoy this part of our mm. podcast now. Yeah. I When I get to it at the end, I'm always like, wow, those are really good ideas. <laughs> That's really fun. <laughs> I've actually been making little audiograms of them so that when we go on our break, which we're about to do, not that we didn't just have a break, but our planned break, we will have some content to share for all those people who, for some reason, don't listen to the end. We should probably tell people that we are taking a break. Officially, not just, oh no, it's the end of the season, but we have plans. Right, so we're taking a break for the month of August? Yeah, I... Is that think that if we come back in early September then we're refreshed we've had time to watch the episodes that we need to watch for our next episode which is going to be exciting I've been planning it for over a year and yeah we can take a holiday from Star Trek no offense Star Trek but it's been a lot Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, all at antimatterpod. And write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And recommend us to your friends. They can take the month of August to (laughs) catch up. 
particularly if your friend hasn't really been all that keen on strange new worlds. I keep getting people coming up to me and being like, is this a safe space to admit I didn't really care for Kirk? And I'm like, yes it is. But also I keep getting followed by people who hate all new Trek and I'm like, guys, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> we are taking a brief hiatus to recover from all the Trek. But we'll be back in a month to talk about the greatest leader in Star Trek history, Kai Wynn. I'm so Follow excited. Follow us online for updates.